0: So tonight, um, I'd like to talk. The talk tonight is a little bit of a corrective. Um, uh, one of the ways that, one of the themes that we talk about a lot here is dukkha. For those of you who don't know the word dukkha, it means generally translated or conventionally translated as suffering, often also described as dis-ease, dissatisfaction, as characterized by a sense of um, maybe being uncomfortable or some lack of harmony or any kind of stress from the smallest to the most obvious is within the realm of the word dukkha. So the stress of maybe having a full bladder and having to go to the bathroom is also dukkha, as well as sickness, aging, and death can be dukkha. Um, And often people um, will ask about relationship and practice. And I like to half-joke about relationship and practice Sometimes people ask about my, my relationship with my wife, who's a practitioner. And I'll say, you know, the first thing to, to um, know is that relationship is dukkha. Because it is. It's dukkha. It has problems. It's, it's, there's, 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 even a perfect relationship has some inherent dissatisfaction. And that's, that's the level of dukkha. It might be a very small level of dukkha, but it's still, there's some dukkha. And if we expect to have relationship without dukkha, then it's really dukkha. <laughs> then then it's serious dukkha. But if we if we expect that there'll be a certain amount of relationship in dukkha because there's a certain amount of dukkha inherent in all human experience, then it's not, a, then it's just, Dukkha. It's not a problem necessarily. It's workable. It's really when we, we think there's no gonna be no dukkha for some reason that it it then it's a problem. And then one of the ways that I like to talk about it, I like I like the existentialist and the existentialist philosophers and and I like their perception, their perspective on Freedom and suffering, even though it doesn't go quite to what I believe are the depths of the Buddhist understanding. And so there's a line that I've often used about relationship and being related, and dukkha, which is from Jean Paul Sartre. um, And the line is that hell is other people. And, you know. It's true that um, there's a certain kind of suffering um, when we have ideas about how other people should be, or how other people should act, or what other people should be doing with their lives, or how other people should be relating to us. And often if you've noticed, they don't do what we want them to do, these people. And it's a certain kind of dukkha or hell. And and I actually, it's not that I think anything that I said was wrong, but I realized I say that a lot without saying the opposite enough. And so I feel like I want to do a little corrective here and I want to talk about um, the fact that even though there's a certain truth that hell is other people and um, it also is true that heaven is other people. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. I don't think Jean-Paul ever said that. <laughs> but, you know, it's a different, different tradition in the existentialists. And there's a few reasons why I feel like I can say that with the same authority, the same truth that hell is other people, but also heaven is other people. So one is really from a perspective of um, a more absolute perspective on what it is that we call hell. Because from a Buddhist perspective, ultimately, hell doesn't have to do with other people at all. That hell has to do, suffering, dukkha, has to do with our own heart and mind. And that's the key to heaven or hell. That the key is not what other people do or how other people act. You know, it's nicer when they act the way we want or the way we think they should or the way the world should go even. But in fact, that's not the freedom that the Buddha described. He didn't describe a a freedom based on getting the conditions right. He described the freedom that he called the unconditioned because it wasn't dependent on the external reality. What he saw that suffering had to do with our own heart and mind how we related to the external conditions, how we related to the internal conditions. One of my teachers said, it's never the other person, that whatever other people do, that we always have the possibility and the capacity for freedom, no matter what's happening externally. And I mentioned this a little last week, I'll just say it again. One of the, some of the exemplars of this are um, Tibetan people, practitioners who were um, incarcerated, in jail, tortured um, by the Chinese government um, because of their um, religion. And that they never lost their practice, they never lost their compassion, they never lost their love, they never lost their dignity, no matter what the circumstances were. Really, maybe I should say are, because there are still people in prisons in Tibet, who still practice their compassion practice for their jailers, for their guards, for the people who hold them prisoners. Part of the way this idea came up for me to give this talk was um, recently I was um, actually having a a really hard time and I I don't tend to have a hard time internally so much these days, you know, everything goes up and down or fluctuates, but I don't tend to get caught on stuff a lot, you know, sometimes. But I was definitely caught, upset, kind of obsessing in a way that, at least for me these days, it doesn't usually happen. My mind doesn't tend to obsess about much. But I was, I was pissed, and I was hurt, and I was having a big reaction. And I'm, you know, I was being mindful of it, but it was, it was sticking in a way that often things don't stick for me these days. And I was, you know, doing all my practices and, you know, it wasn't a horrible thing, but it was noticeable. It was noticeable. And what was interesting was I had to go to a meeting and I didn't want to go to the meeting. Right? It's like I go to plenty of meetings and sometimes I'd rather not be at the meeting. And so, but I went to the meeting because I committed. I went to the meeting and we started, we had a little meditation at the beginning and then People were talking about, a little bit it was about group process, how the group was going to function at that point. It's a group I've been part of for many years, meeting. And um, what was interesting to me was how free the freedom that came partly by um, just being with these people, had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with my practice, anything. And and I and so I would pay the attention. I could just feel the caughtness, the tightness, the contraction, the sense of whatever you know, angst, anguish that I was having. It was strong. I could feel it just go. And I like that feeling. I like when freedom's here. When there's when there's not suffering. When the experience of not suffering is present. And. And so I was struck by it. And it really made me consider, reflect, or or think about, well, what what was it? What was it about being with these people, with Sangha, that was freeing? And what struck me was, um, one, that it was their authenticity, the realness of people. People were very real. They were a group that's known each other, and so people were just being themselves in a real way. And then the second piece was the good-heartedness of people. That that kind of authenticity can only come from a deep devotion to the Dharma. that there's a de- Or a devotion to the truth. Or a devotion to something real. A devotion to something real. And that that value and that dedication has a power to it. And it has the power to impact ourselves and to impact other people. And I felt the impact of it that evening. And I was really, I felt so grateful for their devotion, for their dedication, for their good-heartedness, for their authenticity. And what I'm describing here is a, a little bit of an ordinary. Goodness, Trungpa Rinpoche used to talk about basic goodness, recognizing our basic goodness, and it's something we can even recognize here, sitting here. And I often do here, to be honest. That you know, why do people come here Sunday night? Even a nice night, could go out. It's basically not much, no fog tonight. Go to the beach, be in a park, be in a cafe. Why do people come here on a Sunday night? Many, Some people have come here for many years. They've actually heard all my stories. <laughs> it's like, why, did, why do people come here? People come here because of something really good in their hearts, something really good in our hearts, a certain kind of basic goodness, a real devotion or seeking of the truth of what's real, of what's of value. Or in Buddhism, what's often described as what's precious in life. The preciousness of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Of, the, um, of a teaching that orients towards reality and towards the maturation of our humanity as a, a freedom from the suffering or the disease or the stress or the confusion when we're simply wound up around what's described as the small sense of self our historical identity our psychological identity and so I thought I would talk a little about heaven as other people or the goodness of people the goodness really of us all and um I, I would like to encourage you to... I'm going to tell some stories to really reflect for yourself on your own stories about what you know, about what's happened for you, where you recognize the goodness. Um, I want to say one other piece about what happened to me recently. Um, it reminded me of something... It reminded me, and it's really a little follow up to Gail and Kim's announcement about service, about why service is so important, so important as part of spiritual practice. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and do something tomorrow. That's not what it means. It means to first of all begin to recognize the importance of service, recognize how you serve already. And then also recognize that at different times of your life, service may be an important part of your practice in a very direct way, in a very immediate way. Um, you know, Ram Dass, when he went off to his guru in India, found his guru in India and you know practiced with Maharaji. Um, um, when he was leaving to come back to America, he said to his guru, what... What practice should I do? And his guru said, serve others, serve others. Partly as a way to begin to recognize the goodness of others. Because we, we have a little bit of a confused idea of what happens with service. We, we think us serving others means we're good in some way. It's kind of a little Western, I think, idea. But if you've ever done service, if you've ever really served in some formal way like that, what's really striking about service is how much we get, how much we're given by other people. And I, many people here have have served in the Zen Hospice Project, which I also served in. And one of the most startling or striking things about the uh, working with people who were dying and having people tell you how great you are, right, because you're helping others, was actually how much you got, how much was given in the serving, how much one received as one served. That actually service is a totally a giving and a receiving, always. True service always is a giving and a receiving. Partly because We get to recognize the humanity of each person, the goodness of each person. Um, One of my friends um, was telling me a Zen story. Zen master, having reached enlightenment, asked his teacher before he left. He says, any advice for me as I go out into the world? And the master said, don't disregard a single living thing. Don't disregard a single living thing. And in some sense, beginning to serve, to really serve others, starts to um, awaken that understanding in our heart, how important it is not to overlook a single living thing. And to see that our heart has that capacity, that that the maturation of the human heart includes that capacity to really... To really see each being, each one, each, each life, and the goodness of it. So, for myself, when I started to reflect on this, what I saw was that when the dukkha, for me personally, was the worst, people were the best. And I'll, here's the example that came up for me. And I've mentioned this once before, but not, not in a long time. Um, when I was 13, 14, I was um, um, having the kind of dukkha that people have at 13 and 14. kind A of certain kind of existential dukkha, right? The meaning of life. I've, I've looked, a lot of life looked very false to me and it's having a lot of reaction to the, what I considered a lot of mendacity, a lot of uh, falseness in life. And um, part of the way I responded to that was to quit school. I quit school and I um, started uh, staying up all night reading and sleeping all day. And I stopped talking to my friends. So, and it was, I learned a lot. I read a lot. I read some good books. I actually started reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I don't know how that ever got in my hands back then, but it was my first Buddhist book. And among other things, existentialists. I was having a, a correspondence with this woman, a really older woman, I think she was about 19 or 20, <laughs> who, was, who was living in Los Angeles. And, and I was writing to her. She was trying to explain existentialism to me. It was, it was great. And, um, and, um, but you can't quit school, at least in Detroit back then, at 30, 14, I was 14 when I quit school. It's illegal, basically. And so they were putting a lot of pressure on my folks um, for me to go back to school, which I wasn't going to do, or to become a ward of the court and go into juvenile and because my parents weren't controlling me appropriately. And then the other alternative was I could go into this mental institution in Detroit. So there was this choice I had to make at a certain point because it was... Something had it was like push comes to shove, and um, the mental institution looked like a better, better deal for me than juvenile. I was a little guy, little kid, uh, you know, little at fourteen, and um, I was not a tough kid particularly at that point at all. So um, I went into this mental institution that was associated with the university in Detroit. And it was actually a great place. I was, I was very lucky. Um, I got a lot of help. And wh- what I remember is the sincerity of the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, the attendants, right? I was on a locked ward and all that stuff. But really the goodness of people there is what I'm struck with and what I, I remember. I remember how sincere they were, how they actually took good care of the... You know, I was on a teenage ward, a teen adolescent ward, and they took really good care of us and they really cared about us. And, you know, one of the things I've seen working with physicians, which I've done in a variety of settings as an adult, totally bodhisattva practice, how much they actually care... What kind of devotion and love and um, altruism goes into wanting to be a doctor? And may, you know, maybe there's some mixed stuff. Maybe some people want to be doctors for the status. But still, there's something there that you know, often we don't recognize the goodness that is in, just coming out of people everywhere. Teachers in school, I mean, you know, to want to be a teacher means you want to teach people. You want to help people. Um, any variety of, of um, vocations have inherent in them some sense of helping. And for any vocation, where one really places their integrity, then there, there's some form of service. I don't care whether it's a, a garbage person or a PG&E person. I mean, doing a job well, trying to get people's electricity back on so people have electricity. Or you could just reflect for yourself any job that you've been in where you really gave yourself to it, where you really did it well. There's a certain kind of love and care that's being um, enworlded by our actions. And and then the question is, where does that love and care come from? but the depth of who we are, the truth of who we are. And partly I'm giving the talk, hopefully that we all, because I feel like, oh, I woke up a little bit to a certain kind of goodness that I often take for granted. And one of the beauties of, of practice, of awareness practice, is not to take anything for granted. Not to take one moment of reality for granted. In the Native American tradition, they say, we have drunk from wells that we did not dig. We have been warmed by fires that we did not build. The generosity, the giving is here, it's already here. The goodness of people is here but for us to recognize. So in the way that people give or offer, also, as I said, like teachers or any kind of training, any kind of learning where we've had help, whether it be in dance or music or writing or mathematics or how did you learn how to do whatever it is you love, how did you learn how to do it? You know, a certain amount we do on our own, but a certain amount... You know, we learn from people. We learn, and people love to share what they know. People really love to help. You know, when I swam in the bay, there were certain tricks that you learned about, it was cold water swimming, there's certain things that you learn from other people that really helped make it work. Like, get out and get into a hot shower really quickly. <laughs> Or that if your hands start to go tetany in the water, that's the time to go in. (laughs) You know, I mean, some of us are slow, right? But but it's it's good to get help. But like when I I swam Alcatraz one time, um, the first time, I asked somebody who'd done it a number of times and they gave me this great advice. He said, start slow and finish slow and in the middle, make your push. And it was a beautiful teaching. It was great to hear that. It was like, oh, you just take it easy at first. Just get acclimated. Swim for a while. You get out there. get away from the island. It take, seems to take a long time to get away. You're swimming in from the island. seems like the island stays big for quite a long time. And San Francisco looks small. And then all of a sudden, you're in the middle. And, and you're in this flow. And I got it. Oh, now make your push. And then you just swim, swim, swim. And then coming in, just... Be gracious. It's really fun. You've made it. You've survived. Whatever it is. It's actually instruction that I give for people going on a meditation retreat. If you've been on retreat or if you're ever going to go on a silent meditation retreat, start slow. Take it easy. Relax. In the middle, make your push. And of course, on a meditation retreat, that means to go slower, actually. <laughs> but it it... You know, the wisdom of humanity is handed down person to person to person. It's one of the things the Buddha valued over and over and over again. He described it in what's called the three marvels or the three miracles, uh, the patihariya. And he describes these three marvels that come with as part of practice. And the first marvel is um, the marvel of magical powers. And he describes the powers that can come with deep practice going through walls, walking on water, flying through the air, etc., etc. And it's true, they come at times. Um, going from being one to being many. And I, personally, I've seen that with a teacher once. It was impressive to see that. I, I was impressed. I, I don't do that in public, personally, but but um, really, it, was, it caught my attention when I saw that. And there are some teachers where it's just clear they have certain level of powers that come. Um, and he thought that was a marvel or a miracle, and that, and that was okay. Then he described the second marvel or miracle, which is really about mind-reading, omniscience, which is actually not such a big marvel. Every, we all have some capacity for that. You ever go into a room and you get, you know where somebody's at, you know they're angry or they're sad, you just know their mind. It just happens like that. And the more you practice, actually, the more sensitive one becomes to different frequencies of reality and can key in and know. And the Buddha said he had a mind that was omniscient for the whole world. He could he could see, know the whole world if he wanted to. And he thought that was okay. That was pretty cool, omniscience. And then the third marvel or miracle was the one, he actually a little bit downplayed the first two. He said they were okay, but they weren't such a big deal. But that the third marvel was the marvel that he valued. And it was the marvel that the dharmas taught person to person, that we learn person to person from one to another over the years, over the centuries that human wisdom is passed on person to person and we can learn it, that it's given and that we can, we can learn it and we can realize the wisdom that human beings have realized for centuries now, for the eon of human existence. and so being taught by others what a what a gift what a beauty that we can learn from one another that whether it's about how to get around when you're traveling in a foreign country all the generosity one is shown or the capacity to grow a new plant you, you know maybe you don't know how to grow orchids and somebody shows you how or ride a bike Or learn how to ride a hundred miles sometime. Learning some of the little tricks about how to do it. Which in any art, in any practice, there's a refinement that comes. And it's beautiful to learn all the refinements as you master something. Whether it be meditation or dance, music. One of my, um, when I was reflecting on this, I thought about when I was doing hospice work um, for the Zen Hospice, and it was before we had a building. It was before, we, it was right at the beginning and I hadn't been trained, and, um, but I'd snuck in kind of. I'd kind of um, badgered my way in with Frank Ostaseski. Because the training had happened while I was on a long retreat and then I came back and saw it had happened. And so I started calling him and saying, can I volunteer? What can I do? What can I do? And finally he called me and he met with me and he said, okay, you could do some practical support but you can't do any one-to-one support because you haven't had any training about how to work with people. So I said, great, I'll do anything you want. I'll go to drugstore, get supplies or anything. Because I just felt called to to um, practice in that way and then and this was right at the beginning of the Zen Hospice and they actually didn't have anybody yet who was dying they were kind of waiting for the first person you know who's going to show up and finally Stella showed up and Stella was this woman older woman with cancer who was dying and and Frank took her in at the the Zen Center and um and then he didn't have enough volunteers to cover the shift so he called me and he said would you be willing to do a, a 4 hour shift and i was like sure you know he said well you haven't had any training i said oh it's okay i'll be fine and, you know kind of cavalier about it mm-hmm. and i went in and you know i thought frank was going to show me what to do but he took me and he introduced me to stella and then he left I'm like okay you know, and we're sitting there Stella's in bed there's a nice window and, and so finally after a couple minutes I said you know Stella I don't know what to do you know I haven't been trained she was like oh okay dearie it's not a problem we all need a little help sometimes and she trained me you know she trained me she taught me how to begin to move her you know how to move somebody who's sedentary how to feed her how to bathe her, how to get out of the way and just let her be also. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful to be with Stella. I'm having a bunch of memories come. Her brother came, who she'd been estranged from. This is a total aside, but it's a good story. She was totally estranged from her brother but Frank had called the brother to let her know he was dying and he came up from Texas cowboy hat boots skinny little guy wiry guy you know but a real Texan Cadillac big nice <laughs> kind of an old Cadillac but nice pulls up in front of Zen center gets out comes into Zen center right I'm actually on shift when he shows up and you know bring him in to Stella. They do some kind of little reunion and, and he hangs around. And he starts hanging around Zen Center, right? Every day. And, um, <laughs> you know, and he was drinking a little bit, but not too bad. I and mean, he was, you know, he was being himself and, and he started to get friendly with people at Zen Center. And then after Stella died, and we had this big memorial a lot of people took care of her and, and, um, and he was there and he came and he brought this huge bouquet of flowers. I mean, huge bouquet. And when it was time to talk, I hope I can remember this right, he said, some of these flowers are for Stella. And some of these flowers are for love and some of these flowers are just flowers (laughs) he got the total zen transmission (laughs) I mean he really really did and it was beautiful to to learn from him he was a beautiful guy or teachers you know in the dharma one learns a lot from one's teacher. And so I thought of many of my teachers, what I've learned, their generosity or their kindness. One, one story came to mind, on my, probably my first, was in my first year of practice, I'd sat a couple 10-day retreats and then I was sitting a three-week retreat. And in the middle of it, I was the, I was the afternoon, the lunchtime food store which means after lunch, no, no, breakfast. I was the breakfast food store. After breakfast, I took the food and I put it away in the refrigerator. And I knew where everything was. So I knew where the chai was. And I really liked chai back then. And so that day, I was, I would kind of go in and drink a little bit of chai t- throughout the day. And... I, and by late afternoon or evening, I had a real buzz on from the child. I mean, I can't even drink caffeine now at all, in any way, shape, or form. But Then I wasn't quite so sensitive to myself. And I started, and I was sitting, and I was doing a lot of sitting and practice and sitting, and the evening came and I'm sitting, and I've got plenty of energy for sitting by then. But I started to have this buzz in my ear, this white noise in my ear and I'm, I'm a pretty good yogi and I'm noting it and naming it and being with it and buzzing, buzzing and it's one sit and two sits and three sits and finally I'm like I'm going crazy from this buzzing in my ear and it's late it's late at night now and you know it's after the Dharma talk and so I start wandering around and I didn't know my way around so much in that place and finally I found one of the teachers and I said I need help and they were like come, come in You know, immediately, and I start. I'm weeping. I'm half weeping. I'm my ear. It's driving me crazy. I'm going to have to go home. I don't think I'll (laughs) be able to meditate again. You know, you get a little altered just by the meditation, and then the and then from the chai, it was it was (laughs) exaggerated. And I'm crying a little. And he's like, and he was interesting. First thing he said, well, it's your sound, and you got it. And I was like, you know, I wanted him to take it away from me, right? And then he said, but let's, let's talk about how to work with it, how to practice with it. And he taught me how to practice with it in a very skillful way. And within one sitting, I got so deeply concentrated using the sound now that it was like, oh, I just could go forever. And it was, it was beautiful how it turned with his help. And to be honest, to this day, I can hear this. I can hear the sound now, even when I'm talking. <laughs> and it actually—it's a little bit of a—you know—it was, was definitely the chai that day. But it's also a—you um, know—in the West we call it tinnitus. In the East, it's known sometimes as the nada sound, or in Buddhist. Um, um, teaching and understanding of practice it's also understood as a byproduct of concentration and so depending on which culture you're in you'll get a different perspective on it i considering thinking about this talk this morning i was up away with my wife and we were riding bikes this morning i was just Noticing the care people took. I was in a very narrow road with very little shoulder and I was aware of how careful people were not to hit me or not to <laughs> hit my wife. And I felt so grateful that people really were caring in this way. And it's not, you know, usually I'm a little bit, you know, I ride in San Francisco a lot and I'm a little bit, in, I don't know if entitled is the right word or <laughs> you know, I have, you know, I think bikes should have more room, not less. But here I was really, I could feel my own gratitude for just, and I could see people were actually being careful. Some people went by not so carefully, but still they didn't hit us. And And then other people would be really careful. And it was great that they were so careful. And just, and just for yourself, just to reflect a little on the examples that come to your mind in your own life. I mean, really, I, I could go on and on. I was thinking about retreat, my f- absolute first retreat, and I had a very strong experience on my first retreat, where about five or six days in, it was like all of a sudden it was like I'd taken acid. And it was and it was a good acid trip. It was good. It was just spectacular. And I was so high <laughs> in in this way. I was so present in this way. And something had just released in a way that was very beautiful and lovely. And it just and it just stayed. It was effortless. It was like I couldn't stop being present. I just couldn't stop being awake in a certain way. It didn't last forever yeah. at all, but but that day, it was very strong. And uh, I remember at some point, it was, it was probably near the end of the day, and I was a little, you know, I didn't know. I was like, oh, am I going to be like this forever or what? <laughs> and um, and I went into the um, dining hall late. I hadn't eaten much because I was so kind of just enchanted with what was happening with me. And... Um, and um, I went into the kitchen and I said to the cook, I said, oh, could I have an apple? And this cook who I didn't know and they didn't know me, and she just looked at me with all this love and she just said, oh, you could have whatever you want. In this way, I don't know if you get it. You know, you have to be, have had some experience of silent retreat because there's a kind of vulnerability there that happens where you're so, your defenses are just gone in a certain way or really have relaxed tremendously. And when you get that kind of reaction, when you just see the love of people, it kind of goes right in. It really touch you really see it. You really feel it. You know it. It's very beautiful. Or simple kindness of people. I got an email today from a friend. She said, I had a dreaming about you. Nothing specific but your hologram. Somebody who's moved to Europe, a friend of mine Nothing specific but your hologram. How are you anyway? Just wanting to connect. You know, just the reaching out. Just somebody, oh, who I, you know, they're kind of out of my view because they've moved to Europe. One more story. My dad, you know, family. Often we have, we can have some issues with family. Family. They can be a problem. They can be part of that hell is other people. Reality. Often. But I, I remembered um, when I was um, about 19, I was living in New York and I was doing radical political street theater. And this was right at about 69, 1969. And it was a very it was really fun theater and very interesting and very radical and, you know, against the government, against the war, against capitalism. Um, and we went on tour. We would go to colleges and perform at colleges or different um, radical groups in different cities would would um, sponsor us and we would come and perform and sleep in people's homes and perform at rallies or demonstrations or on campuses. So partly we we were doing a tour of the Midwest. So we went through Detroit where I'd grown up. And we were performing at Wayne State University, the university in Detroit. And uh, my parents came. And it was a really good performance, good night, partly because it was quite an energized campus and the weathermen were there and for those of you who don't know who the weathermen were they were a radical political group came out of the 60s out of us, SDS they ended up going underground for a number of years and there was even a documentary recently about the weathermen this was right before they went underground and they came they 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 knew who they knew about us cuz for a lot of different reasons and they came a lot of them and we had a huge party at the end because we, we had instruments and music as part of the street theater and they came we just we had a party till late at night my parents stayed quite late it was you know they probably stayed till 11:30 which was late for them my, my parents are, were very unsophisticated people very um, working class and not 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 sophisticated politically at all and it was interesting that they came and they stayed, and they seemed to have a good time and I went and the next day I saw my dad after I'd gotten up around noon and um, i I saw I went home and I was talking to him I said, "Well, how was that for you? you know how was it for you to see the street theater and the party and you know and people were smoking pot and all this stuff' it was the sixties and um and my dad said, oh, it was great. It was great. The theater was great. I loved it. You know, what's not to love people? Being creative and having a good time and, and happy and the music. It was great. And then, and then he said, but why do you have to say all that stuff about the government? <laughs> 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 and... And it was so sweet because I could feel his love and his support and actually his appreciation for the fun, especially given that he came from a really lower-class, working-class um, background. Um, he loved to see people not working so hard because he'd worked very hard in his life from the time he was 15, 16, until he loved seeing people having a good time like that. So the stories of people's goodness. Please reflect, consider your own. I'll end the talk. This is from the Pure Land tradition of Buddhism, and this was written by Akigarasu Haya, um, and he. It's, it was called the Mind of Embracing All Things. And he begins by quoting Ho E Bodhisattva. This is a Bodhisattva uh, archetype in the Pure Land tradition, who said, Be free from subject and object. Get away from dirtiness and cleanliness. Sometimes entangled, sometimes not. I forget all relative knowledge. My real wish is to enjoy all things with people. And then Akigarasu Haya says, subject or object, myself or somebody else, individualism or socialism, egoism or altruism, forget about such relative knowledge. Be free from it. Right or wrong, good or bad, beauty or ugliness, don't cling to that either. Forget about ignorance or enlightenment. Simply enjoy your life with people. This is the spirit of Gotama Buddha, isn't it? Somehow I just long for people. I hate to be separated from people by the quarrels of isms or dogma or faith. And what is more, I hate to be separated from other people by profit or loss. I don't care whether I win or lose, lose or win. I just long for the life that is burning inside of me. I just adore people in whom there is that life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.